For the conference, yeah, we have three more. Uh, Mark Wright, Andrew Ehat, and Richard Cohen are still have their papers to give. But um, Mark Wright received his PhD in anthropology from the University of California in Riverside, which I might add is one of the top uh, universities in the country in Mesoamerican studies. And that's what he got it in, Mesoamerican archaeology. His research is focusing on the Maya ritual and religion, and he's also doing a lot of things with Book of Mormon uh, archaeology, but also looking at uh, kind of a Mesoamerican context and, and uh, ideas about the Book of Mormon. We've talked a lot about kind of ancient Near Eastern things, but the, you know, there's a whole Mesoamerican side of things to the Book of Mormon as well, at least you know, assuming it's a limited Mesoamerican geography. He's currently teaching at uh, BYU uh, Religion Department. And he's a great guy, but don't ask him about his fistula, right? Do not do that. You don't want to hear about it. Okay, so anyway. Mark Wright. Thank you. First off, I just want to say it's, a, it's an honor to be here uh, at the symposium in, in honor of Matt Brown. Um, I uh, knew Matt for several years, and... Um, he invited me to speak last year at this at this conference, and it was a wonderful experience. Um, and he was just always such a great example to me of uh, of just diligent research. Every time I saw him, he was he was um, running around campus uh, doing doing new and exciting research. Uh, and uh, he was just a just a, a, a good mentor and a and, and a good friend. My. Um, my title today is Axis Mundi. Uh, typically, you hear Axis Axis Mundi in the singular, uh, but I decided to uh, go with the plural here because uh, in Mesoamerica and in the Book of Mormon, there are uh, a wide range of these um, of these sacred places, and I'll explain what an Axis Mundi is in just a second here. Um, and then I say a comparative analysis of Nephite and Mesoamerican temple and ritual complexes, as Bill mentioned. Uh, we're sort of assuming that Mesoamerica is the right place. Um, we, um, we don't have, uh, we're at a disadvantage when we get, once the, the Nephites and the, the, the Lehites get to the New World, in that we, we kind of lose track of them a little bit. Uh, I'm a little jealous of all the, the biblical scholars and all the old world scholars, because you, you know where Jerusalem is. You can pinpoint where things are. Uh, whereas with uh, Mesoamerica, uh, we're left to our, uh, our, our best assumptions, I suppose. Uh, and so just uh, keep that in mind as we go through. This is uh, what I think um, what the, uh, the data can tell us, uh, but there's a lot that uh, is, is yet to be learned and yet to be discovered. Now, an axis mundi is a sacred place that connects heaven and earth and is believed to be the center of the world, or even the cosmos. Uh, Eliade explained that such places are made sacred through manifestations of a divine known as hierophanies. A hierophany is really just any sort of manifestation of the sacred, and a theophany is, a, is an actual manifestation of, of, of divine. In other words, not all hierophanies are theophanies, but all theophanies are hierophanies. If, if, if a god appears to you, that is both a theophany and a hierophany. Uh, if uh, the spirit does something, you know, if, if uh, something exciting, I, whatever example you want to use, uh, that would just be a, a hierophany. But regardless of whether it's a hierophany or a theophany, it marks a place as sacred. And um, Eliada continues, he says, where the breakthrough from plane to plane has been modified by a hierophany, there too an opening has been made, either upward, meaning the divine world, or downward to the underworld or to the world of the dead. The three cosmic levels, earth, heaven, and underworld, 
have been put in communication. This communication is sometimes expressed through the image of a universal pillar, an axis mundi, which at once connects and supports heaven and earth. So the diagram I have here, for example, is just a very, uh, about as basic as you can get of a Mesoamerican axis mundi. You've got the three levels of uh, heaven, earth, and underworld, and you've got a center place with four world directions. Uh, and this is a guiding principle in every aspect of Mesoamerican uh, religion. Uh, it's the way house plans are laid out. It's the way the cornfields or the milpa is laid out. Uh, the human body is, in fact, a cosmogram. Temples, city plans, all are based on this concept of this, uh, this, this five-pointed um, cosmogram. Now, as I mentioned, many types of axes mundi existed in Mesoamerica, both natural and man-made. Mountains, caves, temples, altars, performance platforms, the central hearth of a home, and even portable objects such as sensors for burning incense. All of these could function as portals of communication between the human and divine realms. Likewise, in the Book of Mormon, there are countless places where ritual activity was performed that opened the portal between earth and heaven. Some of these are obvious, such as temples or synagogues or sanctuaries. But we also read of ritual activity at royal palaces, in, in mountains, in the wilderness, in fields, and even in homes. Such ritual complexes are not limited to faithful Nephites, by the way. The Book of Mormon explicitly mentions uh, synagogues and sanctuaries among the Lamanites, the Nahorites, the Malachites, and the Zoramites. And in some ways, it's actually an easier comparison to look at the ritual complexes of these apostate groups. And I'll give a little plug here for the Interpreter Journal. Uh, Brant Gardner and I published an article, uh, I think it was the second article that came out about uh, the cultural context of Nephite apostasy. Uh, and it's, it's easier to find sort of the deviant, if we want to call it that, religious practices, those that are um, merged and syncretized with native Mesoamerican practice than it is with normative Nephite practice. In other words, uh, all the believing Nephites were wiped out. Uh, and it's difficult sometimes to find uh, examples of, of uh, faithful Nephite religion. Uh, it, it would almost be a surprise to find it. Back to the temple. Nephi tells us that he built one after the manner of the Temple of Solomon, but then he's quick to tell us that it was not built like unto Solomon's temple because they lacked precious things. So what's the difference between after the manner of and like unto? In essence, it didn't look like uh, Solomon's temple, uh, but it functioned exactly the same. Uh, I think we can draw a comparison between the San Diego Temple and the Ogden Temple. Uh, architecturally, the two buildings are drastically different. One obviously more beautiful than the other. For those of you that are in Ogden, that means Ogden, of course. Uh, but functionally, they're absolutely identical. Despite looking completely and totally different, they function exactly the same. So what is the function of ancient temples? Well, the temples are typically the most prominent and grandiose structures in, in Mesoamerica. Although the ancient term for them has so far resisted decipherment, at least among the Maya, um, modern Maya speakers refer to them as kuna, which literally means godhouse. Uh, and uh, among Nahuatl speakers, it's uh, teokali, which also means uh, godhouse. At any given Maya city, temples and palaces typically anchor the site core. Most scholars typically use the, uh, the term temple in reference to buildings whose primary function is assumed to be religious, whereas palaces are structures that appear to be, have been the seat of uh, political authority. However, the religious and political realms do not have, uh, appear to have been clearly distinguished among classic period Maya. Uh, so a strict delineation between them really is an imposition of our own modern perspective. Admittedly, the precise function of these structures is not clearly understood. 
uh, the epigraphic and iconographic records, meaning the writing and the art, uh, contain very few clues concerning the precise function, specifically of temples. We have a lot more scenes of palace activity than we do of temple activity. It is common for larger sites, sometimes to even have multiple temples within the site core, meaning multiple buildings that we know whose function was religious, uh, each of which may have served different purposes. Were they worshiping different gods? We, we, we simply uh, don't know in many instances because all we have left is the uh, structure in many cases. Now there appears to have been a shift concerning sort of the ideal type of temple from the pre-classic to the classic periods. When we're talking about the, classic, uh, the Mayan civilization, for example, the pre-classic period is what we might think of as sort of the Nephite era. Uh, it extends from you know, roughly 500 BC up until about 250 AD, give or take. And then the classic period extends from 250s up to about 900 AD. Uh, a lot of the uh, data that uh, we use comes from the classic period Maya simply because that's what has, sur has survived the best. But as more and more comes out of the ground through archaeology, we're discovering that the, the difference between the pre-classic and the classic uh, is, pretty, is pretty slim. Most of the, the indicators that we thought identified a site as classic, as distinguished from the pre-classic, have actually now been pushed back and we find them in the, uh, the pre-classic period. Uh, so the, the, the distinction really, really only refers to chronology at this point rather than any kind of cultural difference. Um, now, the, uh, the pre-classic temples, those of the Nephite era, are generally not focused on individual rulers. Rather, they tend to highlight specific deities and reflect grand cosmologies rather than individual histories. In the classic period, we see this shift where the temple is really focused on the king, on the individual. Whereas in the pre-classic, the Nephite era, it's on the gods. Um, as the focus of pre-classic temples was typically on, not on specific human agents, it's not surprising that most of them don't contain any royal tombs. In the later classic period, many of the Mayan temples have uh, human burials underneath them, but not so in the pre-classic period. Uh, likewise, in the Book of Mormon, the focus on temple rituals was to be on Christ. Benjamin seemed to fear that too much attention was being given to him uh, and he was afraid that his people might think he is more than a mortal man, a divine king even, and it's, it's hard to blame him. I mean, a divine king was one who interacted with the divine realm, and as Benjamin is saying, I don't want you to think that I'm more than a mortal man. By the way, I'm teaching you the words of an angel that he taught to me last night. Um, he, is a, he is an intermediary between the human and divine realms, um, whether he, he wants to admit it or not. Uh, now, according to uh, John Welch's analysis of Nephite temple worship, we can discern a number of functions that they served. In them, Nephite kings were crowned, religious teachings were dispensed, the plan of salvation was taught, the people were exhorted to proper behavior, sacrifices symbolizing the atonement of Christ were performed, religious and legal covenants were renewed and made, and the resurrected Jesus appeared to his faithful people. Now, here I'm going to attempt to see if any of these functions might be found in Mesoamerican temple rituals as well. Oh, and I meant to have that slide up. So let's talk first about the temple as a location for coronation. The most well-known coronation, of course, is uh, in Zarahemla, when King Benjamin gathers his people together to declare unto them that his son Mosiah is to be a king and a ruler over them. Uh, in Mosiah 119, Benjamin ritually presents Mosiah with the royal paraphernalia, the plates of brass, the plates of Nephi, the sword of Laban, the Liahona. Um, now among the Maya, this is from the uh, recently discovered site of uh, San Bartolo in uh, Guatemala. 
Uh, this dates to about approximately 100 BC. So this is a pre-classic site. And this is one of those pieces of data I was telling you about that really changes our ideas about what the distinction between the classic and the pre-classic is. One of the things that we thought um, was sort of indicative of the classic period was, was divine rulership. And that's now being pushed back to at least 100 BC here. Um, the presence of writing. We have Maya hieroglyphs here, although poorly understood. We can only read one or two glyphs from this uh, particular uh, set of murals. But what we're looking at here in this uh, image is uh, an enthronement ceremony. The ruler is sitting upon a, a, a wooden scaffold. He's receiving the emblems of rulership, uh, much as uh, King Benjamin. He erects a tower. My guess it's uh, out of wood, right? You're not going to erect a, a stone tower overnight. Now, these uh, accession ceremonies uh, were uh, indeed held at temples, and they would have been an occasion for much pomp and circumstance. Um, Maya temples uh, formed the site core, and they were designated with, uh, or they I'm sorry, designed with public spectacle in mind. Uh, they were typically the tallest building in the central precinct and always faced a large plaza that would accommodate thousands or even tens of thousands of people. The architecture of the temple complex was ingeniously designed to maximize the acoustics enabling speakers atop a temple to be seen and heard clearly throughout the plaza. Uh, last time I was at uh, Tikal, uh, which is where this site is, uh, or what we're looking at here, I was at the, um, the base of a temple, uh, kind of a, probably about 50 feet away, sitting on a, on a stump of a tree, and there were some teenagers at the top of this temple, a couple of hundred feet up, and they were whispering to each other, and I could hear what they were saying, uh, and they were uh, talking about how sweaty I was, as it turned out, which... <laughs> It's hot down there. If you've ever been there, you'd, uh, you wouldn't blame me. Um, the point is, I mean, the acoustics here are amazing. I mean, literally, you can just speak in your plain voice, and, and you can be heard by, by the people below. Uh, and so even with thousands in the, uh, in the area, you speak, and you can be heard. Uh, we also read about the temple as a place for religious instruction. Uh, throughout the Book of Mormon, we read about religious instruction taking place at the temple. Uh, Jacob, Benjamin, even the Savior, among many others. Now, among the Maya, we turn again to these murals of San Bartolo. These murals seem to have been didactic in nature, which means that they were used for religious instruction. Uh, elaborate imagery was used in lieu of writing to teach those who may have been illiterate, similar to most uh, Catholic cathedrals. Uh, here's uh, an image uh, that teaches the, uh, you know, about the fall. You have Adam and Eve, they're being thrust out of the garden, etc. Uh, and these were commonly used, again, just to teach people that were illiterate. It's just a, a, an artistic narrative, and you're able to, uh, to teach the lessons that way. Now, going back to the, uh, the, the setting here, the uh, murals were found in a, in a comparatively small room that juts out from the base of a much larger temple structure. Uh, the two entry doors are, I'm sorry, the three entry doors uh, are are low. They're about four feet high. Uh, and even though the Maya people tend to be a, a, a little shorter, they would still have to bend down, bow their heads to enter in. But once inside, they would be able to stand up and they would see these beautiful murals surrounding, uh, surrounding them in this room. And these murals depicted uh, mythological scenes. It's just pure mythology. Now questions remain uh, as to where this visual narrative begins and ends. Uh, and some of the iconography remains difficult to interpret. Uh, in other words, when you walk into the room, the, the mural, it doesn't have a clear beginning or end. Uh, now, just a quick aside, the way these were discovered, uh, a, a friend of mine, um, Bill Saturno, he actually had just finished his PhD. This is coming on maybe 10 years now. Uh, and he got sent out to do just a little mapping project. He had heard about a, a monument that 
uh, an archaeologist had found years before, and had made a note of it in his diary that, you know, about two kilometers away from this, uh, this one little village, there's, there's a monument. And so he was supposed to go out, find this monument, and do a, a, a good drawing of it, because no, no drawing of it existed. There was just the comment that, that it, it, it was there. Uh, so he goes, he finds this little village, asks around, asks if anybody uh, knows where this monument is. He kind of describes it a little bit, and they're like, oh yeah, we know where that's at. It's about two kilometers away. Now, for the Maya, everything is two kilometers away. Uh, I've been the, uh, the uh, recipient of this mistake before, um, and uh, even if something's five or ten kilometers away, they'll say it's two. Uh, so Bill figures, um, you know, he doesn't even need to bring any water, right? Two kilometers, that's nothing. And so uh, five or six hours later, uh, he's dehydrated. Uh, he says he wasn't lost. He had a GPS, so he knew where he was. He just didn't know where he was going. Um, but uh, he was literally at the, the, the point of death. Uh, he thought he was going to die. And he, he sees an unexcavated Mayan temple uh, with a looter's tunnel through it. Looters like to, they'll use dynamite if they have to. They'll blow through these, these temples looking for, for um, valuable Maya objects that they can sell on the black market. So he sees this looter's tunnel and says, thinks, I'm just going to go, I'm going to lay down in the looter's tunnel because they're much cooler in there. The, 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 the temperature is, you know, uh, there's nice shade and the, the, the earth sort of preserves a, a cooler temperature. And he goes and he plops down and he looks up and he sees these murals and he just starts laughing. Uh, and he says, at least when they find my dead body, they'll know I discovered something great. Um, and he did. This, uh, this is probably uh, one of the greatest finds in the last 50 years or so and it was entirely by accident. And uh, it's made him very famous, and I'm not jealous or anything. Okay. Now, one of the points that uh, Brother Welch makes is that the plan of salvation was taught. Now, this is going to be a little bit harder to, to demonstrate uh, among the Maya. But when we look at kind of the bigger picture, when we refer to the plan of salvation, we're essentially referring to the underlying mythology that answers our favorite questions as Mormons. Uh, where do I come from? Why am I here? Where am I going? Uh, and the answer is provided in the Book of Mormon, clearly center on Christ, that he was born, was crucified, and rose again on the third day, that we might resurrect and return home, return home to the Father. So how can we relate this to Mesoamerica? Well, here I wade in some very speculative waters. Uh, I'm not suggesting that the pre-classic Maya of San Bartolo were Nephites, or that they had a clear understanding of the plan of salvation as we know it. But I'm suggesting that some of the underlying themes on the murals of San Bartolo may not have been wholly incompatible with Nephite belief. In essence, it is the pre-classic Mayan attempt to answer those same questions. In very general terms, the murals of San Bartolo appear to depict the moment of creation, the ordering of the cosmos. It's followed by a paradisiacal scene that represents the emergence of the first humans. It's followed by scenes of sacrifice leading up to a scene of resurrection of the maze god, uh, followed by his uh, enthronement. Now this is, uh, it's very difficult to see, I, uh, I apologize for that. But you have to understand these, uh, these are also fragmentary. When he found them, parts of the wall preserved, parts of it had been collapsed uh, down. Uh, and the way that uh, we have these murals preserved now is he, he took a scanner, just like a $99 scanner and a car battery, and he just put the scanner on the wall and would scan these images, and then they used Photoshop to stitch them together. Uh, so it was pretty ingenious. Uh, when you're out in the jungle, you, you, you kind of learn to adapt. Um, but it, uh, so again, essentially we have a scene of creation here. It looks really weird. You've got some ex babies exploding out of a gourd. You've got uh, this right here, which we refer to as Flower Mountain. And I know it's kind of blurry and I apologize. But it's essentially the, the garden, it's almost like a Garden of Eden. It's a place of beauty, a place of flowers, uh, a place of, uh, you know, just lush fertility. And then from it emerge 
um, sort of the first humans. Uh, later, we move on to scenes of sacrifice, uh, offerings of deer and of birds. Um, and then, ultimately, we have a, a scene of resurrection here. And then the... It's really, you can't really see it on this one, but you have the enthronement right here of a human ruler, which mimics the, the enthronement of the, uh, of the maze god. Now, the human ruler who sits on the throne here, I should point out, seems to be an adult version. He wears the same belt uh, and the same headdress as one of these babies that's exploding out of this uh, gourd here. Now, this exploding baby gourd, uh, at first, when we first found it, we're like, what the heck is that all about? Um, but uh, when you look at the, uh, the way they're exploding out, there's one in the center surrounded by uh, four others. Uh, and it seems to be uh, the, the or ordering of the cosmos, the initial ordering of the cosmos. Um, creating order out of the chaos, so to speak. So in other words, because this ruler appears to have the same regalia as that baby, that may indicate the uh, concept of a premortal existence. It clearly is showing the ordering of the cosmos. It's showing a paradise of creation and the emergence of mankind. Instruction on proper sacrifice. The heavenly enthronement of the God of resurrection, culminating in a scene where a human accedes to the throne identical to the one of the God of Resurrection. It explains where they came from, from Flower Mountain, why they're here to worship the gods and to sacrifice to them, and where they are going, to the solar paradise of the sun, to sit upon a throne. We also read that the temple is a place of sacrifice. Uh, and in Mesoamerica, temples were in fact the epicenter of royal sacrifice. Blood was the most sacred of substances. Uh, and they engaged in both human and animal sacrifices there. The typical method of human sacrifice was to stretch the victim across a stone altar and have his hands and feet held down by four men, and then a, pri a priest would make a large cut under his rib cage using a knife made out of flint or obsidian, and then he would reach under the rib cage and rip out the heart, the still beating heart of his victim. Uh, among the Aztec, the body of the victim would then be rolled down the steps of the temple, which were uh, very steep, and accounts by uh, Spanish chroniclers said that these bodies would pile up. Um, at the bottom of the temple. Now, those numbers may be exaggerated. Uh, the Spaniards had a tendency to do that, to, to portray the, uh, the natives as, as savages. Um, but among the earlier Maya, we do have limited evidence such as this that it was happening, but no evidence that it was happening on a large scale. Now, in Alma 3410, Amulek teaches that it is, it is expedient that there should be a great and last sacrifice. Be not the sacrifice of man, neither of beast, neither of any manner of fowl. For it shall not be a human sacrifice, but it must needs be an infinite and eternal sacrifice. It's significant to me that the three things Amulek is expressly telling the, the apostate Zoramites not to sacrifice are the very th three things we know they're being offered uh, by others in the surrounding Mesoamerican culture. Here, this poor guy's just had his heart ripped out. You see the blood pouring down. A jaguar is next in line to be sacrificed. And then a beautiful macaw. You see the beak here, the eye, the beautiful plumage coming down. The very three things you say are the ones that uh, are being offered here. Uh, it stands to reason that the Zormites, who are apostate, are being acculturated into the more dominant culture, which is what we would expect. Now, culture directly impacts the way hierophanies and theophanies are received by a culture. Nephi explains that the Lord speaks to us according to our language and unto our understanding. On the subject of human sacrifice, as Amulek noted, it will not be a human sacrifice, but the sacrifice of a god. I believe that when the Savior appeared under the Nephites, he was communicating to them according to their cultural language when he invited them to come and feel for themselves the wounds in his flesh. He invites them first to thrust their hands into his side and secondarily to feel the prints in his hands and feet. 
This contrasts with the appearance of uh, to his apostles in Jerusalem after his resurrection. Among them, he first invites them to touch his hands and feet. Why the difference? I believe it's because the people, steeped in a Mesoamerican culture, the sign that a person had been sacrificed was the cut in the side. Whereas for the people of Jerusalem in the first century, the main indicators that someone had been sacrificed was in the hands and in the feet. Now, the temples are also a place to enter into the divine presence. This is something that uh, David Bakavoy has talked a lot about. Um, through ritual activity, the Maya believed that they could pierce the veil and evince the presence of gods and other supernatural beings within their sacred spaces. This was sometimes done through burnt offerings, and it was believed the smoke was effectively uh, a screen upon which or through supernatural beings could manifest themselves. Uh, here on Lintel 25 from Yashilan, for example, we see a woman named Ishkabal Shok. This is her right here. This is her on the same scene. What she's doing here is she's actually pulling a, 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 um, a rope with thorns on it through her tongue. And she's dripping that blood from her tongue onto these pieces of paper in this scene, into the sacrificial bowl. And it appears to be happening by night. He's, uh, um, her, her husband, the king, is holding uh, uh, a torch. And then in the next scene, she sets the, the paper with her blood on it on fire. And the smoke rises up, and from the smoke arises this vision serpent, out of which uh, comes a, um, a, uh, a patron god. There's been some uh, disagreement about who this uh, actually is. Uh, some have suggested that it might even be her father, which uh, changes, I think, the meaning, perhaps, of the conversion of the, uh, the woman Abish in the Book of Mormon. It says she was converted on account of a, of a remarkable vision of her father. Now, we typically interpret that as she comes down for breakfast, and she's eating her tortillas, and Dad says, hey, I had a vision. Right? But another way to interpret that, perhaps, is she had a remarkable vision of her father. Uh, just a suggestion. Now, um, the smoke of incense was also used, apart from just dripping blood onto paper, and that was typically burned in front of an effigy of a site's patron god. Iconographically, there are only a handful of depictions of such uh, deity effigies, uh, such as this. So this is sort of a cutaway view, a side view of a temple, and this is a patron god sitting upon a throne, and a burnt offering is being done in front of it. Um, and so these deity effigies, or the idols as the authors of the scripture would call them, uh, are housed in these temples. Now there's no direct evidence that survives from the pre-classic or even the classic periods uh, of, these, of these actual idols. But in the pre-classic, these effigies were made out of uh, wood, out of uh, cedar wood specifically. It had to be cedar. And cedar is known as guche, which means uh, god tree or holy tree. And the priests who made these effigies had to engage in, rit uh, in, in rituals of purification in order to produce them. And it was a fearful act. To be clear, these effigies were not merely representations of the gods. These were the gods. Once the priest finished carving one, it would be ritually activated and placed within the temple. In the classic period, only Maya rulers and priests could enter into the inner sanctuary where these effigies were housed. To enter into the room would literally be to enter into the presence of God. Now, interestingly, uh, the rooms that housed these effigies uh, within the temples were typically covered with, uh, with a curtain. In these two instances, you can see the curtain rolled up and being held up by a rope here uh, in both of these. And then you see, the again, these uh, effigies seated upon thrones. This is a jaguar throne, which is a very common motif, uh, and this uh, throne is a little harder to, to make out. Now, temples were not the only places for ritual. Uh, for the Maya, the home is considered a sacred place, uh, the center of which uh, has a hearth comprised of three stones uh, at its center. Uh, and so in a typical Maya house, the hearth would be there, surrounded by the four sides. Uh, you kind of get this idea of this, uh, going back to this idea of the cosmogram, this axis mundi. 
Uh, as Carl Taub explained, as the first central place, a simple three-stone hearth may well constitute the original con construction of creation. According to post-classic Central Mexican thought, the old fire god, Chutecutli Huehueteot, resides in a hearth at the center of the world. The Inalas de Coatitlan explicitly defines this place as three sacred hearthstones, each personified by a specific god. The Florentine Codex describes this locus as the circular earth navel, or Tlaxico, mother of the gods, father of the gods, who resideth in the navel of the earth, who is set in the turquoise enclosure, enclosed by the waters of the lovely Cotinga. In this account, the earth navel is placed is the place of duality, embodying both the male and female creative principles. This evocation of dualistic principles seems to describe the hearth as a place of creation. However, as the axis mundi, the hearth is also a conduit between the levels of earth, sky, and underworld. Now, the house is also a sacred location uh, for the people of the Book of Mormon. Even the poor classes of Zoramites were complaining to Alma and Amulek that they couldn't, uh, uh, they couldn't worship in the very synagogues that they had built. Um, they believed that they could only worship in the synagogue and seemed genuinely distraught that they could not worship God. And so Alma recites the words of Zenos to assure them that they could worship anywhere and their petitions would be heard, wilderness or field, house or closet. Now, uh, differences, there are clearly differences between Mesoamerican religion uh, and that of the Book of Mormon. Uh, but a common misconception is that Mesoamerica was a relatively homogenous area beginning with the Olmecs in the formative period and moving on to the Maya in the Classic period, then culminating in the Aztec during the post-classic when the Spanish arrived. But nothing could be further from the truth. There were many different cultures that inhabited Mesoamerica anciently, coexisting in space and time. Cultures that modern scholars lumped together were extremely diverse. The Maya, for example, never saw themselves as a single group. They were never unified under a single leader, under a pharaoh, like in Egypt. Rather, each city conceptualized them of themselves as a unique nation, with their own unique pantheon of gods and ritual complexes. Evidence from several major polities, such as Tikal, Caracol, or Naranjo, indicate that each city had its own unique triad of patron deities, uh, along with a rich pantheon of other gods and supernaturals. There were even distinctions in the rituals they would perform. The accession ritual of kings, for example, varied from site to site in terms of regalia that was worn, and even the specific ritual actions that were done to enthrone them. The point I'm trying to make is that the Mesoamerican landscape was extremely heterogeneous, both between and within cultures. Without question, some of the rituals uh, of the righteous Nephites would have been very different from those of their neighbors. But enough variation existed within the landscape that the Nephites would not necessarily have been completely out of place. Enough similarities existed that it may have been within the range of ritual practices found in Mesoamerica, temples and altars, sacrifices and burnt offerings, prayer and supplications, and belief in, belief in and emulation of a dying and resurrecting God. Thank you. Do we have time for questions, Bill, or no?